Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jake Wood, co-founder of Team Rubicon, an organization that provides disaster relief across the globe from responding to earthquakes in Haiti to hurricanes in New York City. Team Rubicon is a group of veterans who are applying the skills they used in war zones, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, to disaster situations elsewhere. Welcome. Thanks for having me. What does Team Rubicon do? So, you know, Team Rubicon is really focused on taking veterans coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan and finding a way for them to continue to serve. And, you know, what we do is we we organize, train, and deploy them for disaster relief. You know, we found a lot of lessons uh, that were learned on the battlefield are applicable in disaster zones. And we just, we feel like there's a, a lot of synergy there that, that can, you know, benefit from both sides. Now, the catalyst for starting the organization was the earthquake in Haiti in January 2010. Where were you at that time? Um, you know, I had just gotten out of the, uh, the Marine Corps and uh, I'd been out of the Marine Corps for about three months. I was living in Los Angeles. I'd been stationed in Southern California. That's what took me out there. And I was applying to go to grad school to get my MBA and was sitting on my couch in my apartment in Los Angeles when the earthquake happened. The joke is that I was sitting around in my underwear eating, you know, potato chips uh, when it happened. And there's some truth to that, probably. <laughs> now, you joke about, you know, being alone on your couch eating potato chips, but a lot of the experience of soldiers coming back from war is isolated and, and lonely. What, what, what was your personal experience being back? Right. I mean, if I, was, if I was alone eating potato chips on my couch when this happened, it wasn't because I was, you know, isolated and withdrawn socially um, after having come out of the military. I, you know, I... It's, it's not really fair to ask how my experience was coming out because, you know, in three months, it's very hard to, to determine. I got out of the Marine Corps. Uh, my, my then girlfriend, now wife, and I went to South America for, you know, a month and, and traveled South America. And I came back and it was the holidays and I was having fun and I was seeing family and friends. And so, you know, early January, I hadn't even thought about life as a civilian yet. Um, and so then I went straight into Team Rubicon. I went straight to Haiti. And, you know, my wife jokes that I really never left, you know, the military. Um, so it's it's kind of my, my experience transitioning out has been far from normal. In a positive sense. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. When she jokes that you really have never left the military, how much of your wanting to go to Haiti was personally driven about like wanting to be back where you had been because of the adrenaline rush and the other things that go along with it? Yeah. I mean, it's it's really hard to, to think back to what the emotions were that were going through that day. Um, you know, I've always been the type of person that's wanted to help people. You know, that was one of my motivations for joining the military in the beginning. Um but, you know, I'd be a liar if I said there wasn't an element of excitement to it. There was a certain level of, you know, the rush. And, and, and you know, I still miss that. You know, whenever missions happen, I long for it, you know, and to, to be where the, the boots hit the ground. So you see the earthquake in Haiti and you said, OK, I want to respond. What logistically did you do? William and I had a couple of initial phone calls about what needed to, to happen in order to make it a reality. And, and, and by the way, William uh, McNulty, your co-founder. Correct. Mm -hmm. And so we had a couple of initial conversations. Of course, the first thing we had to do was get town to Haiti, you know, and that was problematic because they shut down the airport and only military uh, planes were coming in and humanitarian designated planes. So we needed to raise money, get to Haiti, and then we needed, you know, shelter, food, and water. I mean, some of the basic necessities of, of doing anything in life. 
And so we were able to raise the money initially from social media. Now, when you say social media, uh, you posted uh, your desire on Facebook? Yeah, I, I basically, once the decision was made, we, we put it to, to Facebook, which I guess, you know, nothing's official these days until it's on Facebook. And within, I'd say, 10 minutes, my, my future brother-in-law called me and uh, offered to buy four round-trip tickets down to the Dominican Republic, which is where we had kind of decided we had to fly in and out of as a, you know, because of this restricted airspace in Port-au-Prince. So that kind of made it a reality. We knew we could get, we may not be able to get to C if C is Port-au-Prince, but we could get to B, which was right next door in the Dominican Republic. So, and is that a military term, uh, using those letters like that? No, not at all. Okay. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm a big believer in you'll never, you'll never get anywhere looking for the complete solution. You know, you always have to put yourself closer and closer to the problem, finding those incremental, you know, solutions. And, so we knew we could get to the Dominican Republic, and at first we didn't know how we were going to get to the Dominican from the Dominican to Haiti. But we, once you start putting those pieces in place, those other solutions, it, it opens doors. And the next thing was okay, security and where are we going to lay our head at night? And William went to a Je- Jesuit high school in Chicago. For whatever reason, he thought it'd be a good idea to call someone at his former Jesuit high school, and uh, it turns out it was a good idea. And we got put in touch with the Jesuits who were running a mission down in uh, in Port-au-Prince. And so we had a Jesuit brother, Brother Jim, drive from Port-au-Prince across the border and, and met us in the Santo Domingo and then escorted us back uh, into Haiti, um, you know, over land. So how much planning did you do from your couch in Los Angeles uh, versus just learning by doing once you got down there? We were probably, from the time we made the decision to go to the time we boarded planes to, to leave, was about 48 hours. You know, a lot of that was packing supplies and, and continuing to raise some money and, and set some of those things in place. And um, How many were you? Well, it started out with four. And... Uh, in route down to the Dominican, we each recruited another member to the team while we were flying down. So William, for instance, was sitting on the tarmac at Dulles Airport, and uh, a guy leans over and says, hey, you look like you're about to go do something crazy in Haiti. And William you know, was kind of taken <gasps> aback, but he said, yeah, you're right. I'm going down. And he goes, oh, I was a former Army Special Forces medic. Uh, you know, I've got experience in Haiti working for a security company, and I'm, I'm going down there to help myself. Mind if I join? Mm. And so we added that guy, Mark Hayward. And then I added an ER doctor that I met in Santo Domingo at the baggage claim. And Mm. it just kind of rolled up from there. How were you received? Did you ask permission from certain organizations before you went down? Yeah. So again, William, you know, kept making a lot of pieces fall in place. He was in D.C. when this all was going down. And, you know, in those 48 hours that we were preparing, he just walked up to both the Dominican and the Haitian embassies on Embassy Row and probably oversold what it was that we were doing and capable of. But he got signed letters from uh, both ambassadors to the U.S. guaranteeing, you know, the safe passage across the border and that none of our supplies were to be confiscated or anything like that. And so... um, Yes, technically we were we were invited and we had these uh, these permissions. I think that we probably took advantage of the you know the chaos of the situation a little bit. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jake Wood, co-founder of Team Rubicon, an organization comprised of former veterans. These volunteers apply their military experience to emergency situations, working as first responders internationally. When did it occur to you that the situation in Haiti resembled the disaster situations, the ambiguity, the human tragedy, the mismanagement uh, that you had 
experienced out in the field in, in the war zone? I mean, from the moment we crossed the border, the border checkpoint was complete chaos. Um, there was really no control happening. You could just pass and go as you as you saw saw fit. But as you got closer and closer and closer to Port-au-Prince, the density of suffering just increased. There was just still this dust in the air from all the rubble. And it was it was literally like a fog, but it was this chalky dust. And you could still hear people crying and wailing. And we were in pickup trucks at that point and moving six miles an hour through these streets, people coming up and trying to pull supplies off of the back of your truck. And we were getting in there right at twilight. And so it was about to go dark. We made it to the compound right as the sun went down. And, um, you know, we rolled into this Jesuit compound. They had a, um, a guard at the door with a shotgun. And, you know, we did a quick perimeter check to see how secure it was. And, and we bedded down for the night. But shortly after arriving and starting to bed down, one of our, the doctors that had joined the team was approached. And there was a woman or a little girl with her mother who had a, an open and compound fracture in her leg, you know, meaning that her femur had broken so badly that the bone was coming out through the skin. And it had been like that, of course, for four days. So 20 minutes after arriving, our doctors were doing, you know, basic battlefield surgery almost. Uh, and, and without anesthesia, this poor girl was sitting there and she was screaming and wailing. And that was kind of a welcome to Port-au-Prince. You were kind of struck by the similarity in the Middle East. But how much was the fact that your life was not at risk to the same degree part of part of your experience like yeah I mean it was it was interesting I, I you know I had um, I was in the Marine Corps infantry for one tour um, with a you know a rifle squad in Anbar province Iraq during the surge saw the full range of kinetic activity that a you know marine rifle squad can can experience my second tour I was a scout sniper on a sniper team in uh, Helmand province Afghanistan which was the most volatile area of Afghanistan and for the last, really for the last four years. So I had been in danger, you know, I'd been in mortal danger for pretty much the prior four years of my life. So it was interesting to be in an area um, where there was so much need for help and a similar need and in many ways, similar, uh, you know, sensory uh, activity with smells and sights and sounds and all of that. Um, but not having to feel like there was an ambush around every corner. I mean, there was danger. There's a lot of criminal activity in Port-au-Prince. It's a very dangerous city. Nobody's going there for holidays. But, I mean, it was relieving. I think my my friend Clay kind of said it best. He talked about how it was renewed his sense of humanity a little bit. You know, even in a a place like Port-au-Prince, which on a normal day is pretty dangerous, you know, the worst catastrophe in modern history befalls them. And they become more human. They're helping one another. They're putting down grudges and longstanding rivalries to, to help dig each other out or provide water and food for one another. And, and, and we're gracious to our help. By the way, uh, William, your co-founder, William McNulty, how did you meet him? Hey, we always joke about how it's kind of like Match.com. Um, you know, we, uh, we had been put in touch with one another about a year prior to the earthquake. Um, we had never met. Um, kind of had a mutual acquaintance who thought that uh, we kind of thought alike. You know, we'd only had some cursory conversations prior to Haiti. So Santa Domingo, Dominican was the first time we ever shook hands. Yet he was the first person you called to want to uh, get down there. Well, he actually called me. So it was, it's kind of a funny story. I, I went through, initially I called all the guys that had been in my sniper team in Afghanistan. And either they hadn't yet 
figured out that there was a, an earthquake that hit Port-au-Prince or they didn't have a passport. And the irony of being able to deploy to Iraq and Afghanistan is you don't need a passport. I was dumbfounded that they either didn't know what was going on and I had to yell at them to turn on the TV and turn it to CNN for once in their lives or, uh, or they didn't have a passport. Actually, the first person I got a hold of was my college roommate who was the firefighter up in Wisconsin. He didn't hesitate to, to say that um, you know, he was willing to go. And then after I put it on Facebook, I got a call from William. Isn't so, it interesting how you know these accidents happen? Right. Uh, the, the accident of your co-founding team Rubicon was through you know an introduction by a friend. Right. Yeah. And, and sometimes you can't discount some of those uh, you know those minor events that happen. You know, you, one of our mantras early at TR was to you know never say no. You know, say yes to everything because you never know who's going to play out and, and help or be a, a critical you know, component of the team moving forward. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jake Wood, co-founder of Team Rubicon. We'll hear more from Jake coming up. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. My guest is Jake Wood, co-founder of Team Rubicon, an organization comprised of former veterans. These volunteers apply their military experience to emergency situations, working as first responders internationally. And by the way, the organization now is comprised of not just veterans, but other volunteers. Is that correct? Yeah. So we have about 80% of our volunteers are, are veterans. Um, the other 20 are, are a lot of firefighters, uh, you know, some doctors and medics and, and first responders, and um, you know, a few well-meaning civilians slip in as well. At what point uh, did you decide to formalize or institutionalize the organization after Haiti? You know, the whole story is just really funny. Uh, we had no intention of starting an organization when we went down to Haiti. We just wanted to go and help. We thought it was something that we'd you know, tell at the bar, you know, as a one-upper story for the rest of our lives. But, um, you know, while we were down there, we started to see the impact we could have. And, and uh, but I don't, still don't think it really hit us. But, you know, we had kind of a, a sensationalist story, this group of military veterans running around Port-au-Prince, uh, you know, outside the big UN cluster uh, system. And, and, and providing a lot of real meaningful aid in a very transparent way and using social media to tell that story. So we started to get this really large following online out of nowhere overnight. And that propelled a lot of money to come in. And so my dad took a week off of work. Uh, he's uh, you know, the vice president of manufacturing for a you know, small factory up in, in Iowa. And he was running our command operations center from our house in Iowa. What's his name? Jeff Wood. So we were raising this money, and, and I'd, I'd have a, a weekly or I'd, I'm a nightly or every other night phone call with my dad to check in and see, okay, hey, we have more teams coming down from Chicago. They're arriving at noon tomorrow. We have these pieces coming in from Miami and supplies coming in from Pittsburgh. And uh, there was a lot of moving pieces that really you know, snowballed. And one night my dad called me, and we kind of went through the general brief that we'd been going through. And then he said, oh, by the way... I got a phone call from a lawyer who was a former Marine up in Minnesota, and uh, he just incorporated you today as a 501c3. And I said, Dad, what the hell is a 501c3? <laughs> I had no idea. And um, he said, it's a nonprofit organization, and you're the president. I said, well, that's not in, that's not in the plan. <laughs> what do I, why? why? And uh, he said, well, because of all the money that's been raised, um, it was through my personal PayPal account. 
and I was going to be liable for taxes and all these things. And so the IRS, uh, to their credit, did a great job of realizing that this was such a a, an out of the ordinary event that they were very good about allowing organizations that kind of popped up to, you know, retroactively give uh, charitable credit for donations that came in before those 501c3 uh, paperwork was established. So, I mean, it, the IRS actually did a really good job post Haiti of being flexible, yeah, which they're not exactly known for. So <laughs> that's how we found ourselves, William and I, on the board of directors for a nonprofit that didn't exist, you know. 12 hours before the Haiti earthquake. And how did how did you come to the name? Just yeah, right right before we pushed out to Port-au-Prince, William called me and said, I think we should give this a name. It's starting to get a little traction and Marines always want to name everything that they do. So we started bouncing it back and forth. But the, the Rubicon was a river that separated ancient Rome and Gaul. And uh, Roman legions weren't allowed to cross it because it was considered an act of war. Crossing the Rubicon has come to mean the point of no return or crossing to the point of no return. And there's a river that separates part of the Dominican from Haiti as a border. Um, And so we kind of treated that border crossing as our Rubicon. There were no longer any excuses. There were a ton of excuses for us not to go all along the way that people were telling us all these reasons. But we knew that as soon as we crossed that border, we were going to we were going to be committed. By the way, you mentioned before uh, that one of your mantras or rules was never say no. Yeah. Generally. Yeah. I mean, this that that more had to do with like meeting people and, and, you know, take this meeting or meet that person for coffee, even if it didn't seem to make sense. We say no a lot. It's just to get that clear. And, And so how how is that applied in your personal life? Do you? tend to have a posture of openness? Yeah. You know, I've always been a really forward-leaning person. You know, a lot of people, they find reasons not to do something or they, they see obstacles instead of opportunities. And we took this position of we will meet with every single person that we can. And, and it doesn't matter if they're, you know, selling, you know, pink lemonade in Philadelphia. If they ask us to go out for coffee, we're going to do it. We, we talk about the Rubicon and, and, and you're having a forward-leaning posture. What for you uh, was the reason to go into a life in the military? You don't have family in the, in the military. I'd always been interested in the military in high school and was thinking about joining then. And turned out I was a decent high school football player. And so I started getting a lot of scholarship opportunities to go and play college football. And um, that shifted my priorities a little bit, and I wanted to go be a pro football player. And so, you went um, to the University of Wisconsin. Yeah, so I ended up taking a full scholarship to University of Wisconsin instead of, um, you know, going to either a military academy or just joining the Marines right out of out of high school, which had always kind of been a plan of mine. And um, so I went to college uh, fall of two thousand one, and six weeks in or four weeks into college freshman classes, nine eleven happened. I thought about dropping out, you know, a month into college and joining. I didn't. I made excuses not to go. And um, over the course of the next two years, my college career didn't pan out from a football perspective like I'd hoped. And um, then going into my senior year, Pat Tillman was killed in Afghanistan, who had been a pro football player that walked away from $9 million to join the Army. That profoundly impacted my life. And so made the decision the day I saw the ticker come across the screen that uh, he'd been killed, that I was going to join. And here's somebody who played uh, football in college and who sold life insurance uh, one summer. Me? Right? Yeah. How you. the hell do you know that? <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah that, that actually paid enormous dividends. That, that Tell uh, me how selling life insurance paid enormous dividends. You know, dividends. there is not a harder 
sales gig in the world than selling life insurance. But it, it's paid a lot of dividends. Uh, Why do you keep saying that? Why? Well, I mean, I, my whole... It's equally difficult to try to get people to invest in a startup nonprofit where they're never going to see their money come back. And that's really what we were. In essence, I had to go to angel investors and say, hey, write me a check for $50,000 for this idea called Team Rubicon. The only promise I have is that you'll never see your money again. You know, even in the social sector, you, foundations are not quick to write checks to organizations less than three years old. And a lot of them you know, saw Team Rubicon as a flash in the pan, one-hit wonder from Haiti, and didn't think that we'd 50 missions later be you know, still kicking ass. So. You mentioned before uh, your friend Clay. Uh, you were uh, his best man at, at his wedding. He was a former Marine. Mm-hmm. And after the war, he took his life in, in 2011 due to this uh, difficult transition to civilian life. Uh, and there's a quote he said, Marines are at war and Americans are at the mall. Mm-hmm. Uh, to what extent uh, is Team Rubicon a place for uh, former veterans to go to have a sense of purpose, to be able to make themselves useful. Yeah, I mean, that's really what it's all about now. Um, Over the first year, we thought the organization was just going to be a disaster response organization. But what we saw was that these veterans who were participating in that were coming home and saying that it was, you know, the most valuable experience that they'd had since they took off their uniform. And, And concurrent to that, we had a lot of veterans who were asking to get involved with Team Rubicon who... For whatever reason, they didn't have the necessary skill set to go, say, and train medics in Burma, you know, along the Thai-Burma border. Maybe they were a, a truck driver in the, the military or a nuclear biochemical specialist in the Navy, and we just didn't need that. But they they were expressing this desire to be a part of something again. And so, you know, right around this time is when Clay killed himself, and we realized that there was this opportunity for us to become more than just a disaster response organization, but to be an organization that provides purpose and community and, you know, identity for veterans who who are longing for that. I'm Jessica Harris. You're listening to From Scratch. My guest is Jake Wood, co-founder of Team Rubicon, an organization comprised of former veterans. These volunteers apply their military experience to emergency situations, working as first responders internationally. There's a company called Palantir, uh, which uh, addresses big data Mm -hmm. and helping organizations and companies sift through just large information. How are you using Palantir at Team Rubicon? Yeah, so Palantir is actually one of those just never say no stories. Um, I was speaking at an event in San Diego and after the uh, the event, I got approached by this guy named Brian Fishman, uh, who worked on their philanthropy team, and and he approached me, reached out, shook my hand, said, "Great talk." And anyway, we we kind of we have a great talk. The guy's very genuine, and over the course of the next four weeks, we had some you know some just high level discussions about what Palantir might do for us, and I just still didn't get it. Mm. Then Hurricane Sandy happened, maybe a month and a half after we had met. And he calls me and he just keeps calling me and calling me three times a day during the first five days of that response. And I'm actually pretty frustrated that he's continuing to bother me. And he just keeps saying, like, let us go to New York and I'll show you what we can do. And I said, fly to JFK, be there by 9 p.m. I'll have a van pick you up, bring all the equipment you need. Don't screw it up <laughs> you know, or something like that. And, and he showed up and, you know, when they land and they, they show up at our forward operating base, um, I get a phone call from our team leader on the ground. He goes, who are these geeks? And he, he didn't get it either. And, you know, listen, <laughs> fast forward 48 hours, Brian Fishman and, and this team of engineers from Palantir start making us look like the smartest guys in the room. 
And it's it's only because we just didn't say no, although we were tempted to. So what exactly do oh, they do? I didn't even get to the question. So we will go into a disaster zone with a bunch of mobile devices. So we send out these assessment teams immediately after a, a tornado, say. And they go street by street, house by house. And they are inputting information into this mobile device. So we might go through a neighborhood, two different neighborhoods, and one has suffered catastrophic damage and one has suffered medium scale damage, but both are uninhabitable. Um, you might say that go go after the catastrophic damage first because it's, it's worse damage. It's going to take more work. But if we layer in, say, U.S. Census data, which Palantir can do, and then heat map the levels of damage against, say, elderly populations or poverty levels, then we can say, well, actually, although the damage is less significant over here in this neighborhood, this is a more vulnerable population, so we need to pour resources here first because they're not going to be able to get back onto their feet as easy. This will bankrupt them if they don't come in and get free yet professional labor. I want to shift to your personal life. You mentioned that you grew up in Iowa. Mm -hmm. Your father is a vice president at a manufacturing company. Mm -hmm. What does he manufacture? They manufacture laboratory equipment, um, specifically um, calorimeters, so devices that measure energy output. So you put, like, say, food in it, and you put it, make it, you pump oxygen, and then you burn it, and it measures the caloric output of it. Caloric. Caloric, like calories. And your mom? Uh, my mom's been a stay-at-home mom my, my whole life. I've been very lucky. How many siblings do you have? I've got uh, three sisters, two older and one younger. What was your family's response when you told them that you wanted to go into the military, into the Marines? They were devastated. Take, for instance, my dad. I think he was, um, to be blunt, I think he was a little pissed off. (laughs) I certainly know now he understands. What has surprised you about your Team Rubicon experience like running the organization? And also, what has surprised you about your experience just like being out there on the ground? Boy, there's a couple of things that, that jump out at me. I, I think um, the on the international side, there's this aversion to anything not humanitarian. And so that means that there are these all these humanitarian organizations that um, – that loathe Team Rubicon because of our military roots. Mm-hmm. Um, they they have a, a natural mistrust of of the military. And coupled with that, you know, there's a lot of business practices, best practices that just for whatever reason, whether they have the same poor opinion of of big business, but they just refuse to adopt. And you would think that there would be you know just simple things like the adoption of universal cloud computing platforms that would enable a cluster in Manila and a cluster in Tacloban to have access to the same information in real time. But there isn't. And it's and, and, and you have these people that are handing in paper forms with information on different formats that, that get taken in and then nothing happens with it. Nobody collates it. Nobody uploads it to the cloud for, for universal access. Um, nobody's certainly mapping it geospatially. Um, and these are things that the military has been doing for years. These are these are simple, you know, SaaS platforms that any business can have access to for ten dollars a month. SaaS being software and, and as a service, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's that's one of the things that kind of shocks me. Just the, this this mistrust that's placed at both the, at corporate America and at uh, the military for possibly having you know useful ideas that can help improve what's happening. Drilling down to kind of a boots on the ground perspective, I think one of the things that that frustrates me is that there's this instant fear of uh, what the security situation on the ground is. 
there's always this assumption made that if it's a country that had that's you know non-Western, civil society is going to be suspended and and they're going to be clawing at each other's eyes. In the Philippines, for instance, you know the health cluster run by the, the World Health Organization was you know directing people to set up these static clinics, you know at like this community center or this school gymnasium. Well, that's great. But if you had your leg broken in a massive typhoon, you're not going to walk three miles to a community center to, to be, be seen. And, and the reason they were directing people to start these static clinics is they, they could put security at them. And we've, we've always seen that you have to be mobile and move out into the community in order to get them the aid that they need. So the concern should always be there. Don't get me wrong. We're always concerned about safety, but we don't misinterpret desperate, starving people as security threats. We think that they're just simply desperate, starving people. Now that you are deeply embedded in Team Rubicon and you're back in civil society, um, how does your experience having been in the Marines and now helping with disaster situations elsewhere impact even just your, your quotidian life? How often do you use your experiences there as references for the way you go about your day? Yeah, I find myself doing that all the time. You know, hopefully my wife doesn't listen to this podcast, but I, I eat, sleep, and breathe, you know, Team Rubicon, um, except for when I'm with you, Indra. Love you. Uh, but, you know, I, I lean on the things I learned in the military um, all the time. You know, I have no formal training in entrepreneurship. I had, you know, I have a business degree as an undergrad, but we all know that's kind of a joke. And, you know, the the ideas of how to formulate plans and objectives and, and, you know, the, you know, formulating strategy, but focusing on tactics. And, you know, at the end of the day, I think the one thing that most Marines, and I can really only speak to the Marine Corps, get out of their service in the Marine Corps is this attitude this attitude of mission accomplishment and and overcoming odds to you know to achieve objectives you mentioned your wife she has not been to the places you've been how often are you referring to your time in the military when you are together and how does she feel about it? it's interesting you know because of my experiences in the military i look at things much more objectively everyday life situations present themselves i often can revert to this you know, perhaps cold calculus of what needs to happen. You know, if you're told in the in the Marine Corps that you need to storm that trench that has two machine guns in it that's firing at you, you approach that mission with the objective knowledge that you're probably going to lose some men in the attempt. And, you know, in civilian life, we would just say, well, you know what, the trench isn't worth taking. There can be simple things that, that pop up in life where I, I, my wife tells me I need to look at these much with more subjectivity or empathy and she'll usually uh, you know smack me in the arm and, and tell me to snap out of it and stop being Sergeant Wood and be Jake so hmm. it happens I feel like you're you're not robotic but your very tough stance when you first met me has sort of melted away a little bit now and now I see oh this was like Jake oh, was I asked, military was I asked Jake when I walked you in? weren't Jake, but you were no nonsense, Jake. And that's yeah. fine. But it's nice to see how your posture has gotten softer over mm. the course of this interview, which is natural in general. Um, I know it's something I need to work on. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, 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 everybody tells me I have a scowl. So I need, a, I need to work on my scowl. That's what I got in my 360 feedback <laughs> interviews from, from people. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. My guest has been Jake Wood. Coming up, we'll meet Brian Liu, co-founder of LegalZoom. I'm Jessica Harris. This is From Scratch. 